Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. Mm -hmm. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ah, live from the gleaming streamlined state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled in our secret bunker. Somewhere in the Los Angeles area that even Uber couldn't find today. The following program is produced by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. I am the legendary Burl Baron, and sitting next to me, our intrepid fact-checker, Mark C.G. Boyer. How exciting. Yeah, he knows more about everything than anybody cares to find out. That's why they call him fact-checker, Mark C.G. Boyer. The name is Boyer, Mark Boyer. Right? Right. Well, but I am definitely stirred, not shaken. <laughs> You're stirred, not shaken. I'm shaken, not stirred, as a matter of fact. Yeah, we had some very brave member, former gang members who turned their lives around and decided they were too chicken to, uh, to call in after begging me to be on the program. I meet interesting people on the streets of Los Angeles. Usually they want to charge me by the hour. But these were different people. <laughs> No, no, I think they chickened out. After begging me, pleading, we're going to do it, man. It's going to be the real thing. We're going to tell the real story. Not going to hold anything back, mofos. Yep. You can always count on them. Well, we have several things we could talk about today, Mark C.G. Boyer. You don't seem very excited about me reading you some of my uh, short stories. <laughs> They were published in a compilation entitled Nobody's Perfect, which I proved by publishing it. <laughs> well, we could talk about the, uh, the history of social justice in the Judaic tradition. We could talk about uh, what did you do for Pesach? What did I do? Yeah, what did you do for Pesach? We had a Zoom Seder. A Zoom Seder? Why is this night different from all other nights? Because we Zoomed it. Because you Zoomed it. Uh, yes, we did. The monitors and all. So you you had different family members in different places on screen. Yes. And they would... Did you all have the same uh, Haggadah, the same <clears throat> little book to read? Um, the organizer... I have a copy of Haggadah. Yeah. But the organizer sent everyone who was participating what they were supposed to read. Oh, did I get to do the four questions? Uh, there were um, there were youngsters who did so. I always like the evil son. <laughs> he evil says, son. What mean ye by this evil. service? As he says, ye and not we. He excludes himself. <sighs> you knew that, didn't you? Right. Now, my portion are the plagues. Yeah? Yeah. Well, what was your portion, the plagues? Yes, At, I, I, uh, I do the plagues. So, you know. you do the, did you do the frogs? I ribbit, do all ribbit. ten of them. You did all ten plagues. I do all ten plagues. Yes. Which are blood, uh, feces, uh, <laughs> constipation, Oils, uh, meditation. Uh, uh, you know, turning the you know the the river to river. turning the Nile to blood. Yeah, to that's because of the fermented algae or whatever it was, and then the, the frogs yeah, overpopulate. The yeah. And then the uh, you know, and then of course. The smiting of the firstborn. Which is really unfortunate. Smiting firstborn is uh, that's a real tragedy. And in case for those who, are, who aren't uh, up on this material, yeah. um, the, uh, uh, God 
instructed uh, the Israelites to sacrifice uh, a Paschal lamb. Yeah. And to place uh, blood above and to the sides of their door. Yeah. So the angel of death would know which houses to pass over. Oh, that's why it's called Passover. Yes. Also very interesting. Yes. um, God could have liberated the the, uh, Israelites in one one cataclysm. He could, he, have, he could have sent He could do whatever, whatever he wants. He's God. He's, he's God. He's so why did he visit ten plagues upon... Because he's cruel and heartless. <laughs> because he, was, he needed to harden the Pharaoh's heart. Yeah. So that the last plague would have meaning. Ah. Yeah. Ah. It would be nice if it had softened his heart. Well, you know, you can, you know, uh, when you when you kick the bucket in the next couple of weeks. Next couple of weeks. See, I had a phone call about that today. <laughs> Travis Webb called me up today and said, I had a nightmare last night that you were dead. And I said, well, that doesn't sound too pleasant for me either. And he said, well, you know, he, he, had, he was called upon in the dream to uh, plan and uh, do my funeral. And there was going to be a magic act. I guess maybe Matt was going to my funeral because my coffin was supposed to be in the middle of the uh, festivities and there was going to be a magic act. Perhaps I was going to get a resurrection. I don't well, know. how about just an erection? <laughs> yeah, that would be nice too. But then I, I guess Matt was going to saw your corpse in half. Yeah, that's a good idea. It'd be a magic act. So he thought he'd call to make sure I was still alive because the, the dream rather bothered him. So, uh, <laughs> it's a tragic story, no matter how you slice it. But I'm still alive, much to my shock, chagrin, and mortification. And and the general statistical odds. Yeah, actually, if this was a hundred years ago, I'd have died of old age by now. hundred, <laughs> <laughs> how about that for reasoning? If it was a hundred years ago, I would not have survived what I went through. I mean. You've never had this procedure done, and I hope you're fortunately that you don't have to. But it's rather strange for the human body if someone uh, cuts you open and yanks your heart out of your body. Right? I mean, totally just tears the heart out. Not euphemistically, like several girls have done to me, but, you know, actually, for real. To rip the heart out of your body, put it on a table, cut it open, you know, play the hokey pokey with it, you know, do weird things, put it in a fake heart valve, and then stick it back in you, sew you up and say, okay, kid, go for it. <laughs> All the body knows is that it just had the crap beat out of it, had the heart ripped out, chest ripped open. It is pretty traumatized. <clears throat> so let me get this straight. Let me get this straight. So the, did they spin it all around? Yeah, and then they put the lime in the coconut. Then the doctor said, give him jug band music. It seems <laughs> to make him feel just fine. Doctor. Mm, doctor. Doctor, my eyes. <clears throat> we, uh... We are completely unprepared for... Oh, no, I, I'm, I'm always prepared for this eventuality. That's why I went to the Don Martin School of Ad-Libbing. <laughs> so, so I could fake my way through an entire hour when my guests flake on me. Mm. i tell you his name, but it would he's dangerous. <laughs> no, I, I'm rather disappointed after they, after they said, Burl, we, we really want to be on that show and tell people what it was really like. And then they flaked. But, hey, that's showbiz. As we all know, show business <clears throat> is my life. Did you, in any any possibility, get any contact info for them? 
Oh, yes, I have the phone number. I've been calling them and saying, hey, a-holes. <laughs> but no, you won't even answer the phone. So when the gang division calls you and say, why were you calling these guys? See if you can convince them you have a radio yeah, show. Yeah, they were going to do a radio show, yeah. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, they were going to do a radio show. Well, Would you they mind were. coming into the precinct to discuss this? Hey, I got called in by the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. Well, if people. you're the president, it's the it's the other way around. Well, see, when the Satsop Tin Cup races, a rock festival, held in the Satsop, Washington, where I had the pleasure of spending the evening with Spencer Davis and Mike Love of the Beach Boys. Why they were there, I don't know, because they didn't perform. But for some reason, they showed up. There's Spencer Davis, da 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 bump, da 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 bump, and Mike Love the Beast Boys. Mm -hmm. And the fascinating part to me about the evening was that Spencer Davis kept quoting German poetry, but not translating it. <laughs> he said, as, as so and so, the great German poet said in Hoch Signo Vinces. Was is das? Was is das? No. Was is Down there, Dorton. And Mike Love would go nod and. As well, I remember I, when Beach Boys were doing a show and we showed up, they had a big banner. Our album Wild Honey had just come out and they had it Wild Honky. <laughs> true story. Got a lot of true stories from the Beach Boys. A lot of um, <clears throat> interesting talent went yeah. through the band. Yes. Yeah, Glenn Campbell. Seals and Crofts. Really? Didn't know about Seals and Crofts. I knew about Glenn Campbell yeah. uh, playing Beach Boys. And, of course, uh, what's his name? <laughs> what's his name? What's his name? He wrote he Disney Girls. He wrote uh, uh, the famous song that made him a fortune. What was that famous song that made him a fortune? It always it rains in Southern California or something. I don't know. One of those. Mm -hmm. I got some chicken here. Boy, I'm mad at those gang guys. They got a lot of nerve. I'll tell them. <clears throat> you guys got a lot of nerve. I could read you my wonderful story on meditations on the eve of Advent, which is one of my... But what it was is this woman I had lunch with was preparing for Advent at a church. She was kind of in charge of the choir, etc. And she kind of dared me to write a, uh, a story involving uh, her and Advent. I made her totally disreputable. I made her a thief and a con artist <laughs> and a uh, prevert. She was not too thrilled with my version of her. <laughs> it appeared in the story. Wow, that's that's totally unexpected. It's unexpected that I would do something like that. <clears throat> no, it's unexpected that she was displeased. Well, no, I thought she'd be kind of impressed. That I uh, for, for the uneducated, uh, what is Advent? I have no idea because I've never been a Christian. Uh, uh. But it is mentioned uh, <laughs> quite... Uh, Blatantly in the story, it's explained, but I, I explained it, but I don't. I haven't read the story in so long, I don't remember what I said. But uh, she was preparing for it, you know, the choir and the people who are going to sing all these songs just before Easter. I think because just before Easter. I could be wrong. Like I say, I've never been a Christian, so I don't know. And uh, I probably couldn't have been because they make me crazy. <laughs> oh. I'm always amazed to music, gas, and gog and thunderstruck. How shocked uh, Christians are to find out that uh, was it uh, that you know God so loved the world He gave His own begotten Son. But that that part, mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. That wasn't originally in there. <laughs> well, you won't find that in the ancient texts. <clears throat> I oh. saw an interesting nova yeah. on the Dead Sea Scrolls. Oh, really? What, yeah. do, what do they have to say for themselves? Well, the scrolls themselves say a lot, but <clears throat> the nova said more. Really, what did they say? Yeah, they walked through some of the history of uh, of the scrolls and and how um, they've been deliberately destroyed for profit. Destroyed for profit? Well, <clears throat> when they first found the scrolls, they gave it to somebody who was reputable, who sold the scrolls, and the people who found it got some money, he made some money. But over time, fragments, real and... Forged were hitting the market. And the fragments were making more money than a whole scroll. So when the Bedouins who who went and found additional uh, locations with scrolls, instead of giving the scrolls out for sale, they were deliberately tearing them into little pieces. They did what? They tore them into pieces and sold pieces. Sold the pieces. Well, now I know amazing. that Jinx hated those Mises to pieces. Yes, he did. Story. Exit stage left. No, no, that was Snagglepuss. <laughs> no, that was Snagglepuss. Okay. Yeah. Exit stage left. Either. Yeah. yeah, I know. I um, hate Mises to pieces. But then uh, they, in, in the last 15 years, uh, a settlement has been uncovered, an ancient settlement in the Middle East. They had lawyers doing the settlements back then. Uh, no. Because it was a, it was a Orthodox no. Jewish settlement, so they were themselves. They discovered that the that the uh, this little town was destroyed by fire. Ah, which means that when they found the synagogue, yeah, which is uh, a, te- a Jewish temple, mm-hmm. they found the the scrolls, the Ark scrolls, the, the Torah, yeah. the off Torah. Inside the boxes, inside a cabinet. The boxes were metal. Yeah. And as such, there wasn't sufficient oxygen to consume the scrolls. So they were merely charred, turned oh. to charcoal. Could they reconstruct them somehow? They that's be... what we're getting to. Oh, good. The reconstructionists. Okay. So, yes. Well, that's a different story. <laughs> yes, I know. So it turns out that there's a, uh, a company a group of uh, computer scientists who have been working f- on the forensic reconstruction of burnt documents. Amazing. Amazing. And the combination of a high-resolution CAT scan mm-hmm. and their software is able to reconstruct, unfold the scroll, and produce the text. Amazing! That is absolutely amazing. It is amazing. Well, uh, the the high resolution CT scan picks up the minute differences between the ink and the paper. So the the uh, points of variable distribution are part of the data that comes back with the scan. Then the software can take all of the layers and literally unroll the scroll, and the text appears. And when they were finished with the work and sent it back to Israel, they took a look at it. And this was the, the oldest, the second oldest known complete text of the book of Genesis hmm. that they had uh, un- uncovered. It had that the was missing, fascinating. The missing it's 2,500 pieces. years old. 
and it had the missing pieces in there. Because there's huh. some stuff that was missing that when they found the scrolls, they found out, oh, this paragraph was missing in, in you know, the various versions that they had. Like, why, why would that father beat the crap out of his son when he woke up from his nap? I don't know. Yeah, it's because the son well, had know. taken uh, uh, vines from grape leaves and tied them around his dad's scrotum and and made him impotent. Oh. Well, and that's why he was so mad. Well, I, that, that pissed me off. Hmm. Now, I must give Hollywood and Vine pause. Oh. Did you know that Cher's first record, I remember this was a love song to Ringo Starr? Uh, no, I did not know that. Yeah. What it, uh... One of Cher's first songs was about Ringo, and it became very controversial. Um, her solo career began when she released a song called Ringo, I Love You, under the stage name Bonnie Jo Mason. Cher would later use the pseudonym Bonnie Jo Mason when she recorded vocals for the Wu-Tang Clan's album Once Upon a Time and blah, blah, blah. Ah. Cher released Ringo, I Love You in 1964. And Sonny and Cher released their debut album in 65. It means that Cher was trying to be a solo artist before she found success as part of a duo. Now, this is interesting. As some fans believe she began her solo career only after Sonny and Cher disbanded, if you can call it a disband. But I remember seeing them on the Lloyd Thaxton show, sponsored by Tackle Pimple Cream, or gel. They were called Caesar and Cleo. In fact, they had to, to panhandle to get bus money to get to the studio to appear on the Lloyd Thaxton show. How about that for trivia? Hmm? Mm. Pretty amazing, isn't it? But I remember the song Ringo, I Love You because we actually played it on KTEL radio in Walla Walla, Washington. This was a variety station. We played country western. We played classical. We played the fool. Except I played the hits uh, in the evening with DLC Unruh. The song was banned for some reason. I never quite figured out why. Cher's uh, vocals on the song made many people assume she was a man. Because of this, people interpreted Ringo, I Love You, as a gay love song. It was banned from the majority of radio stations, and the song was a commercial flop. There's a very few copies of the song in existence. Therefore, it's probably worth a king's ransom. A small Balkan king, but a king nonetheless. Cher didn't want to record If I Could Turn Back Time. Did you know that? No. Yeah. Didn't want to do it. Yeah, Donna Summer, Paul Shea, all these new people, it's kind of an incestuous thing, you know. They all know each other. Some of them have even met. And the Bee Gees actually wrote a song for Barbara Streisand. Yeah, she didn't do it, though. <laughs> I don't like that one. Did you know or did you see this when Cher called Ellen DeGeneres a bitch on live TV? No. <clears throat> yeah, Cher got fed up with Ellen DeGeneres teasing her during a show appearance, and she called Ellen a bitch right there on the air. Wow. That probably excited Ellen no end. <laughs> well, well, I think it would be her end. Yeah, somebody's. I mean, there's got to be an end somewhere. Uh, Ellen isn't infinite. Isn't infinite? No. Infantile? Possibly, like the show. <laughs> yeah. Oh, have you seen that show that she does? What's it called? The Game of Games, where they kill people and show uh, garbage disposals? 30 seconds of it and happily Never change the channel. The other one is Wipeout. Why those people don't sue for being horribly injured? <sighs> they sign a waiver. I don't like the new hosts, though. Oh, John Sennison. Uh, yeah, I'm, I don't like the new hosts. Who are the old hosts? 
Uh, two other people that I like. Duh. <laughs> Duh. Always amazed me when they change hosts. I figured, well, they didn't like somebody. Well, I think what happened is the show changed produ- production companies. Oh, that'll do it. Because it's on a different uh, channel now. Oh. So. Well, how is Lapidus, former co-host of this show? He was somehow connected to... Um, <coughs> Um, pardon me. <laughs> Burl's dying. We'll uh, we'll keep you updated. Whoa, American Ninja. Howard has something to do with that. He did. I, did. <laughs> I mean, the American version. Because yeah. it certainly had nothing to do with the Japanese. No, the Japanese version. They didn't have any winners for what six seasons. No one could do it. No one could, um, you know, go all the way through all the obstacles and climb Mount Yurama. Yeah. Yeah. And then... Couldn't do it. They never had a winner. They had two people win. Two people make it. One guy made it a few seconds sooner. And I was really pissed when they didn't split the money. They split the money? No, they should have. They didn't? No, they gave the guy who did it the fastest all the money. And I'm going... By two well. seconds. Well, yeah. I guess you win, you win. Well, I would have split the that. money. <coughs> but that's me. Mm. Went down the wrong pipe. Oh, girl. yeah. This is why people write these rude reviews of the show and say, the old guy that hosts the show always chokes to death. Well, not always. But most of the time. Most of the time. Okay. I'll try not to. I mean, I'm lucky to be alive when you consider all the horrible things that have been done to me over my life. Had some great car accidents. <laughs> Driving a Mercedes turbo diesel wagon. It hits the soft dirt on the side of the road because it's doing road work. Car flips. 70 miles an hour, it rolls across the freeway, crashed through the guardrail, and went down the ravine. Ah. Landed on all four tires. In the movies, on the count of four, the car blows up. Well, but the cars don't do that. Well, I know that, but they do in the movies. That's because la- that's because they have some guy with some uh, explosive skills uh, wire the car up. Well, for all I know, someone with explosive skills has wired up my Mercedes. So when it got to the count of four, I opened the door and I got out of the car and I looked up and people were all, you know, looking over the down this horrible wreck. They go, Anybody up there got a cigarette? I'm feeling kind of stressed. So I walked up the hill, not a scratch on me. California Highway Patrol shows up, and I had his giant uh, plush toy frog in the car as a gift for my son. And so it looked like there was a dead body flopping around in his car as it's rolling down the hill. And so the it looked like there was a body laying there like in the back window. And I said to the California Highway Patrolman, I said, I, I was the driver of that car. He got really aggravated. He said, how can you make jokes and do that when this poor guy down there died a horrible death? I said, no, I'm serious. I really am the driver. Well, then he freaks out because he figures that I'm in a horrible state of shock. I'm on death's doorstep. And he starts, like, checking me to see if I have any body left or anything. <clears throat> he goes, there's not a scratch on you. I said, yeah, isn't that interesting? With all that flying glass and everything? Nothing. The the uh, roof of the car 
came down to a razor-sharp point exactly where the center of my head would have been if I had not relaxed and leaned against the driver's door because the entire car was crushed from the top to the bottom of the sides except for that one little area right next to the driver's door. So if I would have still been sitting straight up, I wouldn't be having this conversation through a Ouija board. Mm-hmm. So he was rather surprised that I was alive and well. I said, yeah, I'm fine. So he thought it was pretty amazing. So did I, as a matter of fact. I talked to, <laughs> talked to someone, a friend of mine, bought a car. He assured her it's in fine condition. Drives away from the dealership, gets on the freeway. She sees ahead of her there's a, a traffic jam. Cars are backed up. She goes to put on the brake. No brakes. Just goes right to the floor. Car's still going. She knows that if she can't stop this car, she's probably going to kill somebody because she's going to, you know, she's going like 60 miles an hour. Can't stop. So thinking very cleverly, there's a manual transmission, she threw it into reverse and put the pedal to the metal on the gas. Because, of course, the car shook like crazy all over the place. And then actually laid a rubber going backwards, which kept her from, from killing people. Cops tried to blame the whole thing on her. And she says, no, no, no. He says, well, you can see skid marks. You know, you hit these people, blah, 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 blah. He says, get in the car and move it off the freeway. She says, no, I'm not touching it. He says, I told you to get in that car and move it off the freeway. She says, I don't care. I'm not doing it. I'm not touching that car. She says, I can have you arrested. I'll put you in jail. She says, fine. Here, arrest me. Put the cuffs on. I'm not touching that damn car. I'm not getting in the car. It has no brakes. I'm not going to drive it. So the cop, to show how wrong she is, thank you, gets in the car, starts it up, puts his foot on the gas pedal. The thing takes off. Guess what? No brakes. The car goes off the freeway, out of control. The guy freaks out. It goes up and over and crashes through the wall of a Denny's restaurant. <laughs> and all these people who had heard her arguing with the policeman that I'm not getting in that car. It has no brakes. They all come up to her and say, we'll testify on your behalf. <laughs> so the, the chop shop, the, the cop shop rather, had to pay for the repairs to Denny's and her repairs to her car. And the place that sold her the car with no brakes uh, had to take care of that. So she came out of it ahead, all things considered. But I love the part about the cop crashing the car into the uh, Denny's restaurant, right through the wall, right into someone's chicken fried steak. <clears throat> so for those that, li- that have been in Southern California for a long time, know the name Cal Worthington. Oh, yeah. Yeah, go see Cal, go see Cal. And his dog, used Storm. car dealer. He, his commercials, which he shot live when I was a child, mm-hmm. featured many exotic animals, tigers, lions, zebras, oh whatever. Big, you know, large animals. And? And uh, <clears throat> so I'm taking my driving lessons in high school, and it's time to get a car. I'm going to get a car. Mm-hmm. And I'm home on a Saturday his live commercial comes on for this fabulous car. It's $250. Mm. And they, uh, his lot 
yeah. which has long long since been converted into a um, massage parlor. No, 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 it was a shopping little shopping center. It was a Ralph's, which is closed, and you now mm-hmm. bookstore and coffee shops and restaurants. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's on Havenhurst and Ventura Boulevard. Oh, I know where that is. So you walk. What well, we walk? We walk up to the dealer to to look at this car we just saw. And I am uh, I am not exaggerating as I describe what happened. Please tell. <clears throat> so I'm looking at this car. It was um, a late <clears throat> late fifties. <clears throat> I want to say a Chevy. Mm-hmm. You know, black with the round. You know, the rounded. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> My father goes to look inside. The passenger, you know, the driver's section, mm-hmm. and he takes the door handle to open the door, and the door falls off. <laughs> now, well, I'm I'm 15 and a half-ish and stupid, mm-hmm. and don't, at this point, understand the humor that is going on. So my father has a hold of the door, mm. and the salesman said, takes it. We'll take care of that. Mm, yeah, minor thing. We'll fix that. Minor thing. <coughs> <coughs> and so he asks, is there anything else wrong with the car? <laughs> oh, no, sir. The car's wonderful. <coughs> I said, well, can we, can we hear it run? Well, I don't know if we can do that. Let me, get the, let me see if I can find the keys. And so the salesman goes to find the keys in air quotes. And my father pops the hood to look at the engine. Mm-hmm. And and he's stand I'm I'm looking at the driver, you know, the steering wheel column and the seat with right. no door. And he's just standing there with, looking bewildered as he is at the front of the car. Right. And I kind of saunter on over to look. And what do what do I see? But three reindeer. What? <laughs> no engine. No engine. I could have guessed that one. How was no. the transmission? <laughs> engine. No engine. Doesn't do much good to find the keys if there's no engine in the car. <laughs> and you know, here it is, two hundred and fifty dollars. It's yours. And worth every penny. Worth every penny. Was there a zebra <clears throat> in the trunk? I don't know. <laughs> so the salesman comes back. Uh, rather hurriedly, because I bet. the uh, the uh, engine hood is up. Oh, that must have terrified him. And he comes running in, and my father goes, "Is there any resemblance of a powertrain left in this car?" And he he says, "Excuse me." I go, well, there's no engine. Is there a transmission? Is there a differential? Is there a, what is, is there anything? And what's what is this besides the shell of a former vehicle? <laughs> and my father put the lid down, and we we he went and got better of the transaction. We went and got a hamburger and French fries. Yeah, probably was in better shape than that car. <clears throat> but yeah, I was. Uh, yeah, I, uh, that's just indelibly. Oh, I wouldn't forget a uh, an experience such as that. Kind of like when I was driving my 1962, 64, whatever it was, uh, Corvair Monza, Mumser, Corvair Mumser. 
My father had a Corvair for a while. Unsafe at any speed. <laughs> and the transmission dropped out of the middle of the Evergreen Point Bridge <laughs> during rush hour. Alan Goldblatt could attest to the truth of that. Does it terrify him when all of a sudden the transmission drops out of the entire vehicle and hits the pavement? That was exciting. I owned more than one of those, you know. Shows you how smart I am. <clears throat> I had a 62 Corvair Monza and like a 67 and this and that. I really do have a pick and boil, I'll tell you. Mm. I also had a Mazda GLC, great little car. The first year they made him when they had no power whatsoever. I'm going over Stoquamie Pass, up the incline. <clears throat> I got the pedal to the metal, and the car is going slower and, and slower, slower and slower. <laughs> and I think it's just going like, to grind to a halt. This car is behind me. Of course, there's no brake lights on. They don't realize I'm going slower and slower. I was terrified. Hey, I'm still here today to tell the tale. Mm. But I'm not telling the tale of meditations on the eve of Advent. Well, thank you very much. Yes, you're very welcome. Um, My first vehicle was a Chevy Malibu station wagon. Oh, that's nice. I like the Chevy Malibus. <clears throat> it was, yes, it was uh, It was big and long and heavy. And mm -hmm. I... I had lots of fun with it. I um, I bet you did. I swapped the entire drivetrain. Really? Yes, I put a Dana 60 in the back, uh, put in a, um, a, a three, uh, 355 short block, mm -hmm. <clears throat> then I added a blower. Oh, uh, what was her name? Uh, her name was Holly. Yeah. It was a blower. Yeah. As opposed to a turbocharger. Oh, I like those. Well, a turbocharger works a little differently than a blower. A blower blows directly into the carburetor. But that's basically, it's a, it's a condensed charge of air. Right. Of compressed air, which increases the uh, efficiency of the combustion. It gives you more horsepower. That's right. And then I, a custom, uh, I had a custom transmission and... Uh, um, so you're a lot fancier than I was in my first car. My first car was a 1954 Buick uh, Special or Super, one of the two. Mm. I think maybe my brother had the Special, I had the Super, he had the Super, I had the Special. And it had those, you know, those holes on the side, and, you know, which are very important. But the cool thing about the car, I thought, is that it was like driving a living room. You actually, unlike most cars today where you open the door and you go down into it, you had to step up into, <laughs> up into the Buick. I think. Yeah. Yeah, you step on the runner. Yeah, they had. I thought running boards were really cool, and I also thought wing windows were really cool. My mother always lamented the loss of the running boards because you used to be able to sit on them and change your shoes. <laughs> but you can't. Well, then I guess you, she missed the rumble seat also. Yeah, are you ready to rumble? But when I was uh, when I was a teenager, uh, there was a long stretch of Ventura Boulevard in Encino that really late. <clears throat> Two, three in the morning became a racetrack. Oh, that's dangerous. Uh, yes, so we, you know, it was street racing. And I would uh, I'm 100% <clears throat> against street racing. Well, I would roll up in this Chevy Malibu and get laughed at. But they didn't know what was under the hood. No, no, no. And then when I hit, you know, I could do a quarter mile in 4.6 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> when they say go fast in the valley, they mean it. So you should tear him a new one in your Chevy Malibu station wagon? I find it, fasc it fascinating that um, uh, when I was in high school, I worked at the Encino McDonald's there on White Oak in Ventura. 
Oh, yeah, you mentioned that, that how you were all robbed one time. And well, that was a different story. Locked in a fryer yeah. or something. Uh, and then, so we were, we were you, know, you know, in the summer, the street racing was going on. And it was the same cars. And half of them were in the parking lot in the back of this McDonald's. Mm-hmm. And here, the police can't, in air quotes, find the street racers and they we're can't. all there. Why don't they just go to McDonald's? And they're all there. <laughs> Bust everybody. That's really uh, a horrible thing, the street racing. I remember on, on Sherman Way <clears throat> in uh, like Van Nuys area, <clears throat> this lady and her kid got out of a car with like birthday presents or some holidays, Zoroastrian holiday or something. And these assholes were street racing and they killed them. They hit them, killed uh, them dead and just kept going. Not good. That is not good. Well, you know, the, the section of the Ventura Boulevard was all commercial. Mm-hmm. No, no houses. And there's no no traffic, no people out at that time of night. Just us. Right. In fact, I was on Ventura Boulevard at that time of night, 4 a.m., just last night. Oh, my. And there was no traffic. There was, I mean, it was like... So you were near Plaza I was Bora, looking for a 20-mule team Borax team to go through. It was like Death Valley days. Nothing. Nothing happened. Yep. All the only action was at the 7-Eleven. Ah. Where I saw, they had the L.A. Times and they had the Epic Times. And the person I was with said, I've never seen the Epic Times before. What is it? I said, you remember the Klan? You'll love it. So <laughs> they passed on that. Got the L.A. Times instead. Hmm. I think it's going to be more investigative reporting in the Times, in the New York Times. and Well, so besides, besides uh, <clears throat> just, you know, being a wandering Jew, what were you doing in Encino at four in the morning? Well, I was staying in a luxury hotel. I was staying in a b- boutique hotel. Ah. I've been staying in these sleazified motels. Right. They're charged with a lot of money, these really sleazy motels, because they have really sleazy clientele, such as me. <laughs> the very fact that I found out that most of my fellow renters at this particular motel I was staying at Rather drug dealers or prostitutes. They're cool people. But because what they were doing is basically illegal, they charged them as much money to stay in these little, you know, ratty motels <laughs> as if they were staying at a real fancy-ass boutique hotel. Right. But they charged them the same amount of money. So having figured out that I was not happy staying in the Notel Hot Springs Motel with uh, Raul and... Uh, the fentanyl twins. <laughs> I said, hmm, you know what? For 30 bucks more, I could be staying in a lovely boutique hotel on Ventura Boulevard, such as the Boulevard Hotel and Spa. Ah. So I moved to the Boulevard Hotel and Spa, which is a lovely place. Very nice people. And if there's uh, hookers and drug dealers in there, I haven't had to interact with them at all, which ah. is better for my budget. <laughs> Tokyo theme? <laughs> What's that? Tokyo theme? Yeah. yeah. Tokyo theme. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Then I know the place. <laughs> <laughs> I've stayed I bet, there. I bet you did. <laughs> no, the, the Notel Motel yeah. was, it was the one in the valley, uh, farther, farther deeper in the valley. <laughs> Not the Tokyo one. Tokyo one was always too hot to stay at. <laughs> Uh, and then you have to worry about, you know, <clears throat> a the once-in-a-while raid. Yeah. yeah. Raid! 
Yeah. And then, the you know, there. you're sitting there going, well, I just, uh, I just am sleeping here. I bet I just sleep here. Ah, really? uh, yeah, right, sir. Then I was staying at this other motel that was also famed. The, the, it was in like two sections, the, the 100 section, 200 section. Some of you will know what the uh, motel I'm talking about. And they put the tourists and the families in the 100 section. And they put the regulars, who were primarily drug dealers and prostitutes and ne'er-do-wells, such as myself, in the second section. For some reason, they just assumed, taking one look at me and my daughter, that I was a drug dealer and my daughter was a prostitute. And so they, they said, we don't care what you do here. You can have all the customers, all the dates you want. We just like you to take care of us, a little kickback, you know. And my daughter's going, uh, excuse me, I'm a data process analyst consultant. I'm, I'm not a prostitute. Although being a data analyst consultant for many major corporations may be considered the same. Yes. <laughs> They were a little bit mystified by that. And they couldn't quite figure out what, what I did because I just wrote, I was writing a, one of my brilliant books at the time. And then I'd go around to all the different rooms and make friends with all these various people to get their personal stories, which I could always use in a book. And the manager would come around to collect the rent at someone else's unit, and there I'd be. And he'd go to collect rent at someone else's unit, and there I'd be. So he figured I must have been some big drug kingpin or, you know, like, uh, uh, what's his name who runs Hustler Magazine? <laughs> like, you know, Pimp Daddy or something. So uh, to keep him amused, one day I slipped him an extra 20 bucks. I said, this is for being so understanding. <laughs> oh, my life is so fascinating. Unfortunately, you're known by the company you keep, as George Durante found out. And uh, so I decided I didn't want to keep that company. <laughs> Or that corporation. In fact, I was minding my own business, as Matt Allen would say, <coughs> in the uh, hotel motel room. Just knock at the door. I open the door, and there's a woman standing there with a mask on. Not a Halloween mask, but, you know, like a COVID prevention mask. She goes, hi, remember me? I said, well, take the mask off. I'll see if I recognize your face. Don't recognize the top of your head, so I can't say. So she takes the mask off. Not bad looking. Says, yeah, this, the lipstick was all wrong. Big smacky red lips. And I said, um, no, I don't recognize you. I don't think I've ever seen you before in my entire life. I bet you're looking for the guy in the room next to me who also has black hair and brown eyes. But he's from uh, Uruguay or Colombia or something. He goes, oh, I think you're right. Sure enough, that's who she was looking for was the guy next door. <laughs> and then just as a party remark, she goes, would you like some company? And I said, I like a corporation. <laughs> she didn't come back. <coughs> but I no, bet you she can't. No sense of humor. No sense of humor. A tragic story. Hey, I'm gonna, uh, someone should do an expose on uh, this rent-a-car place, Fox Rent-a-Car. Rent-a-car. Go to Seattle. All of a sudden, the car doesn't work. They won't start. It must be low on gas. So we go get some, you know, gas tank and put gas in it. Still won't. Engine lights on, won't start. So we call the rental car company and say, hey, the, uh, the car won't start. We already had one of the tires shred, like, you know, a fruit roll-up, which is not a good sign of, you know, maintenance. And uh, says, okay, we'll bring you another car. So they uh, send a tow truck, and they bring us another car just like the one we had. They put the other one on a tow truck thingy and take it away. 
And then we get this bill for umpteen thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars for the horrible accident the car was obviously in to the massive amount of damage to it. So it was never in an accident. There was never any damage. The car just wouldn't start. Oh, no. There's all this. We'll send you pictures. Oh, they never sent the pictures. They said the car was in a horrible accident as if there was a big, uh, there'd be an accident report. <laughs> there'd be all these things. No, no, no. Thousands of dollars. Insurance company. Bottom two out of three falls, I guess. I don't know who won. But, I mean, it was it was totally bogus. There was never any accident. This is the car wouldn't start. But all of a sudden, there's thousands of dollars in damage. This car. Maybe it fell off the tow truck on the <clears> way back to the... Uh, well, now, <clears throat> nowadays, it's much harder to get away with because anyone with a portion of gray matter will take pictures of everything prior to the vehicle disappearing. Yes. Well, I didn't have the gray matter. <laughs> you don't have any matter. matter. No, for that matter, if you don't brains, it doesn't matter. Ah. Like those brave former gang members who were too chicken to call. And see, you didn't have to listen to my story about meditations on the eve of Advent. Um, thank you. <laughs> thank you very Actually, much. I rewrote it several times. Kept changing the ending. But uh, I guess, you know, they say that writing short stories is more difficult than writing a novel. That if you write long enough and hard enough, you'll come up with enough pages that might make a novel. It's interesting. <clears throat> I mean, one of my favorite authors... Um, Essentially, it's all he did. What? Novels uh, or short no, stories? No, short stories. Edgar Allan Poe. Yes, I like those. I like uh, Edgar Allan Poe's short stories and his poems. I taught my daughter, who's now 42, mm. when she was six. I taught her the raven. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered, while I pondered weak, weak, weak and weary, weary over many quaint and curious, curious volume, volume of forgotten, forgotten lore, while I nodded near the napping, suddenly came there came a, a tapping. As, As if someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. Tis some visitor, I muttered. Only this and nothing, nothing more. more. Ah, distinctly, I remember it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember brought its ghost upon the floor. And it goes on from there, of course. Yes. <laughs> but my daughter memorized the whole damn thing when she was six years old. Right. She would recite it. People would go, what the hell? Is that a midget? <laughs> we were actually sitting in a little restaurant called Merchants in Walla Walla, Washington. And she was like about six or seven. She had like the pigtails coming off the side of her head, you know, if you have at that age. And she looks at me very seriously in this crowded restaurant. He goes, Papa, who was worse, the Shah of Iran or, uh, she wanted to know who was worse, the Tsar of Russia or the, uh, the head dude of Iran, the Shah. But she was referred to the Shah of Iran back in the 1800s, who she'd been hearing about. She wanted to know how he was relative to the Rizar of Russia. And so we discussed that. Now, neither one of them was a really great example of humanity. <laughs> and she gets to have to go to the girls from these people come over and say, we, we're very embarrassed to ask you, sir, but that looks like a little girl, but is she a midget? <laughs> I said, no, she's not a midget. And she got kicked out of the little, she wanted to have like a play date with some little friend from kindergarten. And, uh, so she goes over to this kid's house. Apparently these people were rather religious. They said to Anaya, they said, what church do you go to? And Anaya goes, well, 
Christians have churches, Muslims have mosques, Jews have synagogues or temples, as do Buddhists and Hindus. But don't you worry. We believe in Jesus just as much as you probably do. And the lady immediately called her minister who said, get Satan out of your house. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so suddenly my daughter is picked up, tossed into their car like a sack of onions. They knew your daughter. Yeah, yeah. drop kicked yeah. her right out. That we had to get Satan out of our house. I said, oh, it's Satan, because she happened to know about all these different things. And we taught her that stuff when she was little. Ah. She used to be able to tell the story of Moses. Who, Moses, take off your shoes. Ah. You're standing on holy ground. Yes, sir, whatever you say, sir. <laughs> so <clears throat> do, you have, uh, do you have any idea what we have on tap for next week? Well, uh, yes, actually, we have some wonderful things coming up. I was really working hard on getting... Uh, the guy who wrote uh, the book about how he wasn't shot by Son of Sam. He was considered one of Son of Sam's victims. Right, but he was. But he wasn't. I think his wife tried to kill him. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, you know, that's I'm understandable. Trying to get that guy. There's a lot of really great true crime books that have just come out. Several of them from Wild Blue Press, which will soon be publishing uh, two new ones by Frank Gerardo and I. Maybe even a third one if Stealing Manhattan. Stealing Manhattan. Well, you know, we had a deal with them for Stealing Manhattan, and uh, the agent person we work on said, oh, you know, you get big bucks for this. You know, take it to a major, a bigger publisher like the ones you used to be to and get big money. And I said, okay, I'm waiting, waiting. Then the movie deal started, then the COVID thing hit. But I'm hoping this year it'll all, all come together. That would be excellent. It's a really, it's, well, I'm really proud of the book. It's uh, quite a good one. This new one that Frank Gerardo is doing most of the heavy lifting on, To Live and Lie in L.A., killer book. Hey, Pearl. Yeah. What's next? Magic Matt Allen, Demons and Decadence, live for the Lighting Up Lounge on Outlaw Radio Live. Is he really speaking Spanish here? Because I think I think he's faking it. Except that when he says Chevrolet, I mean, come on. Don't you worry about a thing 